Let me open us in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, your revealed word and instruction to us. Give us ears to hear, open our hearts to receive what you would have to say to us today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Crossroads. Let me add my welcome to you as well. Uh, if you are new, uh, I am glad you are here with us. Uh, like Mark said, my name is Aaron. I'm a pastoral intern here at Crossroads as well as the director of our youth ministries. And uh, it has been a joy to dive into our summer series here in Psalm 119. And really, I, I do hope this has fueled your, your appetite, your desire to be studying God's word every day, that we would learn to hide it in our hearts. So I hope uh, this psalm has, has done that for you, and I hope you've been able to take time and, and meditate on it throughout uh, this summer series. Uh, before we get into our passage today, I'd like to make just a few notes on this psalm in, in general, the psalm as a whole, because I know that summer is a time of vacation and traveling, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe you're new or just haven't been with us in a few weeks. Um, so let's just do just a little bit of, of a review of what this psalm is. So Psalm 119 is the longest psalm and also the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And this length makes it uh, by nature be very reflective and very meditative. There's a lot of reoccurring themes, also reoccurring phrases and words that we notice throughout all of these verses. And we, we noticed too that, that this is definitely not a legal document. It's not a how-to manual or a, a user's manual, but it's Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry not only communicates a message by what it says, but also by how it says it. So it's not, it's not just about what the words are here in Psalm 119, but also by the form and the style and the organization that it's written. One pastor that I was reading this week said this about Psalm 119. He said, The monotonous structure is intended to help the reader ruminate and thus enable him or her to fully appreciate God's word and then apply it to daily life. The tireless incantation fosters a contemplative climate which softens the heart and opens it to wisdom. I didn't think I could write a better summary than that. But that's exactly what this psalm is doing. Is it's, it's sort of taking us by the hand and, and leading us along to, to hear its message, to soak in and marinate how we should apply God's word to our lives. This psalm is a prayer, and it is circular 
in nature, but also it definitely has a progression. It's heading somewhere. The psalmist is, is heading toward a direction. And so as we have studied this psalm, we, we begin to see this, this progression of this, this prayer, this song of the psalmist. So just briefly, let me outline kind of what we have seen thus far in, in our study, what we've observed the psalmist in his prayer. We started off by, by seeing the blessed man whose way is blameless, who, who walks according to God's word. Then we saw that living according to God's word is the good life. It truly is the good life, and it provides relief and comfort in the midst of affliction. And this affliction, the psalmist recognizes it's good. It has purpose. It has meaning. Because it's, it's taught him to learn to treasure and to trust in God's word. And then last week... We read of the the psalmist cry to the Lord in in despair. He's being afflicted. He says his enemies have almost destroyed him. And then he turns his heart and his gaze. And in so doing, he turns ours as well to to delight in God's word and in the clarity that it brings in the chaos and the complexities of life. So this brings us to our passage today today. And our passage will be the next three stanzas in, in this psalm. Three stanzas are the next eight, three eight-verse sections, as you'll see them marked out there in your Bibles. And so we look at now, after receiving this clarity, after turning to gaze and to meditate on God's Word, we now look at how the psalmist responds to this clarity that God's word brings. What is his response going to be? So as a way of introducing our passage specifically in this next progression, I want to do this by way of illustration. And I'd like to look at the life of someone who was vital in saving the world from the threats of Sauron, the dark lord of Middle-earth. I want to look at the character of Samwise Gamgee. Okay, now, if you're confused at what words just came out of my mouth, what I'm referring to is J.R.R. Tolkien's best-selling series, The Lord of the Rings. So, in a quick recap of this story, there's good versus evil, And there's this main character, Frodo. He's tasked with the, the job, the, the, um, the task of destroying a family heirloom, this powerful ring. And if, if this ring falls into the wrong hands, it could be used for evil and the destruction of the world. If you're a fanatic fan, please have grace on me, as that is a very oversimplification of this story. But there's another character. His name is Sam Wise Gamgee, and Sam for short. But Sam is a close friend, a close confidant of Frodo. And many people have called, called Sam 
the most heroic character in Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you agree with that. But through opposition, through difficulties, through challenges, through temptation, he journeys with Frodo. He stays loyal with him all the way to the end. And, and this, this is really, this is really what I, I'm, I'm getting at is Sam's character is shown exemplary. He's shown as staying loyal, staying true to his commitment to his friend, who he even, even refers to as Master Frodo, putting himself in the position of a servant. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see that, that the psalmist's loyalty to God's word, to God's law, his instruction, is very much like the loyalty of Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings. This loyalty is the psalmist's response. It's his response to the light of God's word. This will be also contrasted with those who don't commit to God's word, those who are not loyal, those who are double-minded, as the psalmist will call them. So let me begin by reading these three stanzas, and we'll, we'll then look at some high-level movement of, the, of this passage specifically, noticing the themes that the psalmist develops, and then we'll drop down, and I want to look at three specific ways the psalmist teaches us to persevere in our commitment to Christ, even in the midst of affliction. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 119. Specifically, we'll be starting in verse 105. The words will also be on the screen behind me if you would like to read and follow along that way. Let me begin. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I have done justice and righteousness 
Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant, for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments. Above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Church, this is the word of the Lord. So maybe you noticed some progression through these three stanzas. And if not, don't worry, we'll look at it in more detail now. But they are meditative, uh, circular, reflective in, in nature. But I definitely think the psalmist is moving towards something here. There's two main reasons why I, I think this and, I, and why I think that these three stanzas in particular have a, a direct flow. And the first is this. There's, there's an overarching theme of commitment that follows through each of these stanzas. We'll develop this a little bit more in detail in just a little bit. But the second one, a little bit more nuanced, but there's some repeated words and phrases that connect these stanzas. This is a common feature of Hebrew poetry where when Hebrew was written, there wasn't any punctuation. And as I'm learning now, there was no vowels, which makes it incredibly difficult. And so what the writers would do is what they would, they would repeat words and phrases to, to bookend a section. So look with me at verse 104. This wasn't our section, but right before, the psalmist ends that verse with, therefore, I hate every false way. And then this is repeated at the end of verse 128, where he says, I hate every false way. It's also interesting to note that in verse 113, we have the idea of hate and love. And then at the, at the end of this third stanza we're looking at, in verse 127 and 128, we have the same ideas of love and hate. So without reading too much into, into this, we definitely see there, there's somewhat of, of a structure here. Seems as if our author is, is being intentional in, in driving, um, driving us to see this as a unit. So let's, let's dive in, beginning with, with verse 105. The psalmist gives us what I will call the governing analogy for this next section. God's word as a lamp and a light for the psalmist. So just as Ryan preached on last week, after severe affliction, the psalmist then turns to God's word for clarity, for direction. And we pick up that theme here in verse 105, where God's word is illuminating this, the path forward for the psalmist. And it's not just 
so that the psalmist can see, but so that he can walk. Which brings us back to the very first verse of this psalm, of Psalm 119, where the psalmist said, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So the light of God's word is the path forward for the psalmist. Not just showing him the way, but also what it's doing is it's revealing what lies ahead. So if we look at verse 110, the psalmist says, The wicked have laid a snare for me. So God's word is illuminating the dangers, the temptations, the the snares that are on this path for the psalmist. Then in verse 106, I'll call this the governing action of, as I've studied, what I think is the governing action for most of this psalm, but specifically our portion here, where the psalmist swears to keep the righteous ordinances of God's word. He's been saying this all throughout this psalm, saying things like, I will not forget your word. I will keep your law continually. I have not turned aside from your word. And here's very explicitly the, the psalmist, psalmist says, I am giving an oath. I'm swearing an oath to follow your commands. This is his response to the clarity that God's word brings, is a right commitment to it. And then in verse 107, We'll pick up the pace after these, this verse, but these three verses, I feel, lead us into this, this psalm as a whole. But the psalmist cries out, I am exceedingly afflicted. Not exactly what we expected to come right after his, his swearing of an oath, but he's showing us here that just because he swears an oath, just because he commits to the Lord following his way, doesn't mean that he's guaranteed a life of comfort or prosperity and as we've seen all throughout this psalm this this psalmist is just exceedingly exceedingly afflicted and opposed by enemies with temptations on every side and his desire here is to stay on the path of righteousness living his life according to god's word this is what he calls his free will offering and then at the end of this stanza He says that it's forever, forever even to the end. That's his desire, is to persevere through opposition, through affliction. Then in the next stanza, he turns the focus. It's no longer on his commitment for the beginning of it, but it's it's on those who are non-committal, those who have not made a commitment. He says in verse 113, that he hates the double-minded. And, and what he has in mind here are those hypocritical people who maybe they give the appearance of being loyal or being a person of their word, but are really, they're just being deceitful. They're just saying what people want to hear. This Hebrew word for double-minded is used one other place in the Old Testament, and that's in 1 Kings 18. The story is when Elijah has the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So if you remember this story, uh, King Ahab gathers all the sons of Israel for this, this showdown between, between these prophets of Baal and Elijah. 
And Elijah looks to the people and he says to them, how long will you hesitate or go limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. This is what the psalmist has in mind. It's these type of wishy-washy people. These people are causing him to be, to be tempted, to be um, afflicted and, and desiring to leave the path of righteousness that he is committed to. This hatred is paralleled with the psalmist's love for God's word in the second half of this verse in 113, but then also he repeats it again in 119 and then again in 127 because he knows God to uphold his word and to carry out his judgment on the wicked. See, in verse 118, he says, You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. This, this notion of, of judgment on the double-minded brings the psalmist to a right fear of the Lord, which is why he keeps seeking the Lord to teach him and to lead him and to shelter him so that he doesn't fall off the path of the righteous. That brings us to our third stanza for the day in which we see the psalmist feeling dominated again by his oppressors, again afflicted. And he feels he can't hold on much longer. He says in verse 123, my eyes fail with longing for your salvation. It's as if he's, he's at the end of his rope. He's trying to hold on to this commitment that he's made, but he doesn't know if he can do it. So he calls on the Lord to act. In verse 126, he says it is time for the Lord to act. And this, this word here, this, this word for act, it's the same verb that's used in verse 121, where he says, I have done justice. The psalmist has done justice. Again, showing us that, that he has done all that he can, and now it's up to the Lord. He needs the Lord. He needs God to sustain him, to revive him, and to carry him, because he can't do it on his own strength. He needs the Lord to act on his behalf. So for the remainder of our time today, I want to look specifically at how the psalmist teaches us to persevere in our faith, even in the midst of affliction. We're going to make a few observations from our text. And, and the first is this. The first is that God's word is the light that will keep us on the path of righteousness. God's word is the light that keeps us on the path of righteousness. We see this specifically in verse 105. But first and foremost, let me remind us that before this psalm applies directly to us, before we can join in this prayer with the psalmist, it first has a messianic fulfillment, meaning that before we join in, there is a, an application of this to Jesus, that he fulfills what is written here. 
So just as Ryan pointed out for us in our introduction in this series, the, the psalmists, the, the authors of these psalms, they were writing prophetically about Jesus, about the coming Messiah. So our first observation is that God's word is the light which keeps us on the path of righteousness. That is not first and foremostly true about us, but about Jesus. At the start of Jesus' ministry, he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he fasted for 40 days. And during this time, he was tempted. He was tempted by Satan. And how did he combat these temptations? Through Scripture. It was the light of God's word that that Jesus trusted in to keep him safe and to illuminate the lies of the enemy and the temptations that were in front of him. Just as the psalmist claims God's word is for him. This should be an encouragement to us. That the same light that guided our Savior through temptation is available for us. It's available to guide us. The question is, are we using it? Or maybe, can we even use it? Is God's word so hidden in your heart that when you experience trials and afflictions, you have it ready to rehearse the truths of his revealed word to us? Just as the psalmist prayed in verse 111, that he says he has hidden, treasured God's word in his heart. A lamp is only useful if it's lit, if it's on. We are sure to fall into temptation if we are not delighting in God's word, meditating, consuming God's word day in and day out. Busyness is no excuse. Sooner or later, if you're walking in the dark, you're going to trip and fall or bump into the door that is left half open and stub your toe. If we're not daily feasting on God's word, seeking to apply it to our life, letting it illumine the sinfulness of our hearts, our sinful desires, then we can be sure we're going to fall into temptation and even begin to doubt God and God's word. The only way we can avoid the pitfalls that culture has placed in front of us is by following the role model that Jesus, the example that he set for us in letting Scripture illuminate the way just as he did. The second thing that I want to observe from our text that I feel the psalmist is teaching us goes back to the governing action, as, as I called it, of, of this section, which I really feel is the, is the main message. And that's the psalmist is teaching us that To persevere in our faith, we must make a commitment. It's only through an intentional 
relentless and unwavering commitment to Christ and to his word. We must stay loyal to it. The psalmist shows us that this is the right response to the light of God's word. He's not merely just saying, oh, hey, look, I can see. It's a lamp. I can see things in front of me. I can see nice rocks on this path or trees that are lining the path. But he commits to walking on it and not straying to maybe a path that looks a little bit nicer. What he teaches us here is that we do not by happenstance fall into obedience to Christ. We don't just by accident happen to wake up one morning and say, oh yeah, I think I'm going to live my life for the Lord today. It's a choice that we make regardless of our feelings, regardless of our emotions, what culture is pressing down on us. This is why I titled this point an intentional and unwavering, relentless commitment. Because in order to persevere in our faith, we cannot be like the double-minded people who waver between two opinions, two different options, depending on how they feel. We make a commitment to Christ with intentionality. We should not be naive to the dangers that the devil will set before us. Remember, James tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion ready to devour its prey. It's almost as if the psalmist is teaching us that the more pressure we face to take the path of the wicked, the stronger our commitment to our beliefs, to our theological convictions, to Christ, the stronger that commitment must be. But isn't this just the, the test of loyalty anyways? When, when pressure grows, loyalty will show itself to either be loyalty or hypocrisy. When life's pressures are weighing on us, we either prove that we are committed to God's word or that we're double-minded. Some encouragement comes in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith, faith will what? Will produce endurance. Is not this what the psalmist prayed back in verse 71? When he says, it was good that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then here in verse 111, he says, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. He's considering it a joy to be committed even in affliction, even in temptation, so that his true commitment is tested and shown true, unlike those who are double-minded Again, no one demonstrates this better than Jesus, our Savior, who perfectly fulfilled a commitment to the Father 
when on the night before he was crucified, before he took the wrath that was rightfully meant for you and me, and he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours. Paul tells us he became obedient even to death on a cross. The psalmist's free will offering is this commitment, this oath that he makes with his mouth. But Jesus' offering was a sacrifice of his whole life for you and for me so that we can enjoy eternal life in union with him. Jesus committed to doing the will of God the Father. And this is the definition of an intentional, relentless, and unwavering commitment. We can't move on without asking this question. Have we made a commitment to the Lord, to his word like this? Have you truly trusted the Lord with your life, committed your life to him? And I don't mean you've just prayed a sinner's prayer or maybe have a Bible verse in your Instagram bio. I mean, have you submitted to Christ's headship and his authority over your life? In everything that his word tells us, the psalmist says in verse 127, he loves God's word above finest gold, above the finest gold there is. Translation to our modern world, do we love it more than our 401k, more than our careers, more than our comfort, our social status, our entertainment? If we have committed our life to Christ, if we love his word more than anything, then consequently, we should also then hate every false way. The two go hand in hand. The Gospel of John describes Jesus as both God's word and God's light. He is the light. As New Testament believers, we cherish Scripture because it's God's revealed word, God's revealed word to us. But we don't stop there. We don't fall into worshiping our Bibles. No, our, our Bibles point us to who we should be worshiping. The words aren't just the light to our path that we read in our morning devotions and hope that we can find some creative application for our life or for our current circumstance. The, pages, the, the words on the pages reveal Jesus as the true light. He is the one who guides our way. And the correct response to God's word is, is a right worship in awe and wonder of him and to fully commit in obedience to him with our lives. The more we focus on him, the more we are willing to let the fleeting pleasures of this world just pass us by or to rightly respond to the afflictions and the trials in our life with confidence and trust in Christ. This is what this passage is about. The psalmist cries out to the Lord, 
My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Then he calls on the Lord to act on his behalf. The psalmist has revealed a very important truth to us here. If he's going to stay true, stay loyal to his commitment, it is only if God's loving kindness grants him the grace to do so. At the climax of the story in Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo are ascending Mount Doom where they need to go. Spoiler alert. Um, Frodo collapses because of the weight of the ring and and this oppressive darkness that he's feeling from, from carrying it and this quest that he's on. And in heroic fashion, Sam runs over, picks him up, and he says, Master Frodo, Come on, Master Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. As he hoists him over his shoulder and keeps going on his journey. Church, this is the surprise ending for us. We are not Sam in this illustration. We are Frodo. Jesus is the one who carries us to the end. The psalmist teaches us that it's only by God's loving kindness that grants us the grace to persevere to the end, even in the midst, even through persecution, affliction, trials, and temptations. Yes, we need to be meditating on God's word day and night, treasuring it in our hearts. We need an intentional, relentless, unwavering commitment to him But ultimately, it is Christ who carries us. It is Christ who carried our sins to the cross. It's in Christ alone that we receive salvation, and it's by Christ alone that we persevere to the end. I would be remiss if I didn't comment on a very specific application of this passage to the week ahead. As many of our students head back to school, begin classes in the public school system or homeschooled or our recent graduated seniors head off to college for the first time for a new season of their life or our returning students head back to college for their second, third, fourth, final year. I know many of you parents have asked the question and are asking the question, how do I know my son, my daughter, is going to stay true to their commitment to Christ? How will I know they're going to stand firm in their faith? Students, maybe you're worried. How are you going to stand firm in your convictions amongst your friends Or we, amongst the cultural ideologies that seem to be pushed in a classroom or in a book or just in culture in general, those in, in the workplace, in the work culture, how do we know that we're going to stay committed, that we're going to persevere 
that we're not going to be swayed onto the path of the wicked. And I think the answer comes in another set of questions. Have you fostered a love of Scripture, a love of God's Word in your life? Parents, have we done this in the homes? Have we practiced how to think biblically about a life decision? Have we taught our kids how to do that or how to think biblically about a new cultural social trend? If you answer no to these questions, then it indicates that your priorities need to change. You need to make a new commitment to God's word, living in obedience to him today. Don't wait. But if the answer is yes, let me encourage you that the Lord will sustain you through the trials of life. That's what this psalmist is saying. It's not by his strength. It's by the Lord. His word is the illuminating light to our path. You can trust him to answer you and revive you when you don't seem like, don't think you can hold on much longer. You can trust that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the illumination that your word brings to our lives. We thank you that you are the ultimate fulfillment of this word. Lord, we pray for your strength to persevere. We look to you to be the light to our path. Lord, may we relentlessly commit our lives to you with an unwavering commitment. Thank you for sustaining us, sheltering us by your mighty hand. And Lord, may your loving kindness grant us the grace to run the race that is marked out for us for your glory. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.